Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Kansas City Star, the Kansas City Beacon, Medical News Today, NBC News, and PGA.com. Next up in today's program is a story about the new mayor in Kansas City, Kansas. The title of the story is, Let's Make It Happen. Tyrone Garner is sworn in as mayor of Kansas City, Kansas. This is from the Kansas City Star. It was written by Aaron Torres and was written on December 14th, 2021. Standing on the stage at Memorial Hall, Tyrone Garner was sworn in as the first black mayor of Kansas City, Kansas in Wyandotte County on Monday and laid out a plan for how he hopes to improve Wyandotte County throughout his next four years. In his speech Monday evening, Garner asked for unity to help bring about change in Wyandotte County. We must set aside our egos, remove our silos, and be willing to work collaboratively to bring about the positive change so many desperately want to see, Garner said, to a crowd of several hundred inside Memorial Hall. Let's make it happen. Residents of Wyandotte County had grown frustrated with past administrations, feeling that the mayors and commissioners had not done enough to improve the county and city. Taxes were too high and development in downtown was non-existent, they said. Garner capitalized on the frustrations he sensed from voters throughout his campaign against incumbent David Alvey. He retired from the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department in 2019. He didn't have any aspirations to run for mayor or any public office, but friends and confidants kept telling him he could make a difference as mayor. Garner was an outsider, not a member of the political club that seemed to dominate the unified government through the years. He sees that. He defeated incumbent Alvey in the November 2nd general election, recording 8,531 votes to Alvey's 8,133. Ultimately, I said yes to the call to action and became determined to facilitate to promoting a message of unity, opportunity, and hope, Garner said. A determination that we can change the hopes and dreams of today and becoming the reality of tomorrow. A reality of what Wyandotte County can be. Before running for mayor, Garner worked for the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department for 32 years, climbing the ranks until he ultimately was named deputy chief in 2015. Now that same police department is under fire due to several controversies. A few weeks before the general election, it was revealed that federal prosecutors opened a criminal grand jury investigation into former detective Roger Golubsky, that's spelled G-O-L-U-B-S-K-I, who was accused of using his badge to exploit and rape vulnerable black women. Garner has voiced his support for a Department of Justice investigation into the police department. Garner said Monday he fully supports the men and women in public safety and asked the crowd to give them a round of applause. But then he said there needs to be measures designed to better hold those that can steal our public trust to the values and expectations of our community. Garner repeated the issues he campaigned on, saying it was time to have affordable youth programs for children and also making sure Parkwood Pool, the only public swimming pool in Kansas City, Kansas, located in a predominantly black neighborhood, wouldn't be closed like it was last year. He once again called for a lower bill from the Board of Public Utilities and more development east of I-635 and in the Northeast, an area that is predominantly filled with black and brown residents. Five of the unified government commissioners who were also sworn in listened to his speech. 
Garner will rely on them and their votes during full commission meetings in order to fulfill his campaign goals. He said he's ready to do that. My main priorities will involve me reaching out to our unified government commissioners to work towards system changes that would allow for a unified government administration to be more accountable to the elected body, Garner said. We need to ensure an improved balance of power where the will of the people is better reflected through those they elect to represent them. There is one photograph that goes along with this article. It shows the mayor-elect holding up his right hand as he is sworn in to his office as mayor. He's wearing a gray suit and a blue tie. Holding the Bible that the mayor-elect is swearing in on is a lady wearing a green suit with a corsage on her chest. The caption reads, Tyrone Garner is sworn in as the first black mayor of Kansas City, Kansas in Wyandotte County during an inauguration ceremony Monday, December 13, 2021 at Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. That was the story titled, Let's Make It Happen, Tyrone Garner is Sworn In as Mayor of Kansas City, Kansas. It was written by Aaron Torres. It was originally published December 14, 2021 at the KansasCity.com website of the Kansas City Star newspaper. The next story in today's program focuses on education. The title is, While Some Parents Push for Book Bans, Educators and Other Community Members Promote Diversity. The subtitle is, Schools and Teachers Have Worked to Make Their Libraries More Inclusive, But Some Parents Are Challenging New Titles. This story appeared originally in the Kansas City Beacon and was written by Maria Benevento and was originally published November 30th, 2021. As a parent of a Liberty Public School student, Aaron Semek, spelled S-A-M-E-C, knew other parents in local districts were objecting to books they considered inappropriate. Some complained to school boards and district leaders, leading to books being temporarily pulled from shelves in a few districts, like North Kansas City and Goddard, Kansas, and reviewed in others. But one or two parents in a Liberty School District Facebook group threatened to take matters into their own hands, Samick said. They posted that they would tell their children to check out books they found objectionable and then lose them so no other student could read them. Worried that students might lose access to books, especially those about LGBTQ people and people of color, Samick started a GoFundMe campaign called Help Get Banned Books in Little Free Libraries. She aims to get books that have been challenged in Kansas City area districts or elsewhere in the U.S. into as many little free libraries as possible, making it easier for students to access them even if they disappear from school and public libraries. I'm not telling people they shouldn't have conversations about their kids reading those books, but I don't think it's fair to remove them, she said. I think parents need to be ready and willing to have those conversations with their kids. Samick is one of many parents, educators, and students defending books that have been challenged. In recent years, educators have made a concerted effort to diversify the reading materials children encounter, whether in the formal curriculum or in school or classroom libraries. That's harmful to a child to not see themselves, to not see literature as a way of understanding their experiences, their histories, their communities, said Nora Peterman, 
and assistant professor of language and literacy in urban teacher education at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But it also does harm to children who maybe do see their experiences. Maybe they're always the protagonists. They're missing out on the opportunities to grow and to learn and to develop understanding as well. Educators say students need inclusive libraries and curriculums. Peterman said that when teachers consider what students should read, they shouldn't start with the books. Instead, they should look at the students themselves and consider what impact they want literature to have on those students. There's very few books that I would say, this is a great book. Every child should read it, she said. Every child might read it, but they won't all enjoy it or grow or learn from it necessarily. When educators choose books that all students read as part of the curriculum, Peterman said, every student should feel like they belong in a reading class and that their identity is depicted in the books. Classroom libraries, collections of books that not all students read, present an opportunity for teachers to add additional materials that reflect students' experiences or help them develop empathy and understanding and care for other cultures and experiences, she said. It's also important for teachers to know their students and point them towards books appropriate for their individual developmental level. What's terrifying to one seven-year-old might be hilarious to another seven-year-old, Peterman said. While all English and language arts teachers she knows want students to love reading, Peterman said attention to diversity and inclusion issues can vary by district, school, or classroom. Funding can be a barrier for teachers who want to add books to their classrooms but may have to purchase them themselves. This year, Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools completed a project to raise awareness of diversity and inclusion issues in books. A committee of staff and teachers conducted an audit of books in the elementary school curriculum. Darcy Swan, Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools Director of Curriculum and Instruction, said the reading curriculum the district audited was being phased out for reasons unrelated to the audit, but educators wanted to practice recognizing bias in books distinguish between teachable and offensive bias, and prepare to hold nuanced discussions with students about reading materials. For example, Swan said that if illustrations in a book of African folktales seem stereotyped, teachers might consider whether the author and illustrator come from the culture they depict and whether the book contains inaccurate cultural representations or erroneous historical information. While educators likely wouldn't rule out a book that depicted only traditional nuclear families, they should think about the family type students come from and find representations of those as well. Teachers should prepare to explain their decisions and to discuss potential bias or stereotypes with students, Swan said. What we want to do is honor our professionals to make professional decisions, but give them the right professional development to do it. Banned books make it harder to include all students. Swan said Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools isn't alone in its concern for equity and inclusion in reading materials. Companies that provide curriculum already strive to avoid bias and represent various identities, she said, meaning Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools rarely has to flag those issues when looking for new materials. But Peterman says she's worried that publishers that have started to diversify the stories they tell will reverse course in light of challenges, seeking mass appeal. When you read about these stories of books getting challenged in a lot of different schools and districts and libraries, it's often the same titles that you see every time, Peterman said. Why is that? It's because there's not many titles. Actually, there's not even that many options for children. In recent months, 
Parents and politicians across the country have complained about schools using books they seem inappropriate. In the Virginia governor's race, an ad by candidate Glenn Youngkin included a parent who wanted Toni Morrison's beloved removed from a high school English class. Youngkin, whose campaign focused heavily on school curriculum issues, defeated incumbent Governor Terry McAuliffe, becoming the first Republican to win a statewide election in Virginia in over a decade. In Johnson County, supporters of conservative school board candidates in the Olathe, Shawnee Mission, and Blue Valley districts described as pornographic an excerpt from All Boys Aren't Blue, in which Arthur George M. Johnson recounts having consensual sex with a man as a college student. After parents objected to the book's presence in high school libraries, the Shawnee Mission School District changed its book complaint process. In Missouri, the Northland Parent Association has also referred to books it opposes as pornography. The group's Facebook page includes excerpts of sex scenes from graphic novels and videos of parents reading passages from books to school boards. The Northland Student Association has responded with a petition against banning books, particularly in the North Kansas City and Liberty Public Schools. Parents and community members at a recent Liberty School Board meeting also spoke against book bans. Earlier this month, North Kansas City schools pulled All Boys Aren't Blue and Fun Home, a graphic novel by Allison Bechdel, from circulation to review them. In a November 19th letter to parents, the district said it would return the books to libraries November 22nd, but allow parents to fill out a form restricting their children from checking out specific books. Both novels were also on a list of nearly 30 books removed from circulation for review in the Goddard, Kansas School District. The district later reversed its decision to remove the books. Some parents and educators say books that certain parents criticize are a source of support for students or can help engage them in learning because they are relevant to their lives. An eighth grade literacy and language arts teacher in the Olathe School District who asked to remain anonymous because of fears of retaliation from school board members and candidates, says she's seen a positive impact from books related to police violence like All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kiley and The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. I have seen a lot of students in my class when they read those become very engaged with reading and then able to connect to many things that are going on in their world outside of a book which I feel is kind of the first time they're able to do that and to have difficult conversations, she said of Angie Thomas's books. Many other books parents have challenged contain LGBTQ characters. That includes All Boys Aren't Blue, which is about growing up black and queer. Johnson, the book's author, said it includes sexual content to educate teens about consent, safety, and avoiding sexual abuse, and so black queer students who aren't often represented in TV and film can have something to relate to. Samick said it's also important for students like her eighth grade son, who was white and cisgender, to become better allies by learning about others' experiences. And some of the book's parents criticized, such as Crank, a cautionary tale about meth use, have other positive messages, she said. But even if she doesn't personally like a book, Samick said, she wouldn't want to ban it. If I'm going to support books for book's sake, I'm not going to nitpick on whether they have a valuable life lesson or not, she said, pointing out that a student might find value she doesn't see. That's why the Olathe teacher who asked to remain anonymous doesn't believe schools should remove controversial books. You are not aware of what other children may need in their literary experience, she said. I also don't think it's at all educationally appropriate to never be exposed to another side. 
If you're only reading materials that's directly in line with what you're getting at home, I just don't really see that being a strong education. There are some illustrations that go along with this story. The first is a picture of seven books laying on their side, just showing the name of the book and the author. I'm going to read the names of all the books that are pictured here, and then I'm going to read the caption. On top is The Perks of Being a Wildfire by Stephen Chbosky. Underneath that is A Lesson Before Dying by Gaines. Underneath that is Lori House Anderson's Catalyst. Next is the book Fences, written by August Wilson. Next is Beloved, written by Toni Morrison. Next is The Handmaid's Tale. I do not see the name of the author on the spine of this book. And the book on the bottom is The Secret to Superhuman Strength, written by Alison Bechdel. The caption to this picture says, A Liberty Public Schools parent is raising money to stock little free libraries with books that have been challenged or banned, including many of the titles pictured. Several of the books were temporarily pulled from the Goddard, Kansas School District after a parent complained. The next photograph that goes along with this story is a picture of books on a shelf. The caption reads, Books sit on a shelf at Wise Blood Booksellers. 4045 Broadway Boulevard, Kansas City, Missouri. Educators say it's important for students to have access to a variety of books so that every child can find stories that engage them and reflect their experiences. The last illustration that goes along with this story is a list of books that has been put out by the American Library Association. The title of the list says, American Library Association's list of top 10 most challenged books of 2020. Number one is George by Alex Gino. Number two, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. Three, All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kiley. Four, Speak by Lori House Anderson. Five, the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Six, Something Happened in Our Town, A Child's Story About Racial Injustice by Marianne Solano, Marietta Collins, and Anne Hazard, illustrated by Jennifer Zivoin. Seven, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Eight, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Nine, the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. 10. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. That was a story from the Kansas City Beacon. The title was, While Some Parents Push for Book Bans, Educators and Other Community Members Promote Diversity. It was written by Maria Benevento and was originally published November 30th, 2021. Next in today's program is an op-ed piece from the December 20th edition of the Kansas City Star. The title is, Is Math Racist? We Should Be Asking Different Questions. It was written by Christine Emba, last name spell capital E-M-B-A. And it was originally published in the Washington Post. Is Math Racist? Ask USA Today recently to near universal derision. The answer is no. Of course, mathematics, the inanimate science of numbers and their various operations, abstractions, and transformations, 
does not have a particular racial affinity. As damage control, the paper soon updated the headline to instead ask whether math education were racist instead. Both iterations, however, reflect the current paranoia about a social justice agenda being smuggled into schools. The question headlined a story about how some schools are considering altering the way they teach math to better serve struggling K-12 through students. The piece described how teachers are using new techniques to better engage students, such as collaborative learning instead of solitary problem sets, and an emphasis on real-world examples, including those that occasionally deal with questions of race or justice, calculating the living wage in one's community, for instance. What should be at issue, in other words, are pedagogy and capability, what works and what helps the most students succeed. The culture-warring headline was just a distraction. The story also discussed how some school districts, in California most notably, where achievement gaps for black, Latino, and low-income students are the widest in the nation, that are considering changes to their instructional framework. Proposals include shifting the order of subjects, delaying Algebra one until the ninth grade, say, creating data science classes and integrated courses that combine elements of different math disciplines or eliminating math tracking and ability grouping, including gifted tracks. Progressive activists have made terms such as anti-racism and decolonization the stuff of best-selling books. They're used de rigueur in any conversation about diversity and equity. Conservatives, in turn, have jumped on such talk with delighted fury. It's Marxism, wokeism. These teachers hate America and want to hobble our tiny geniuses. All of this is misrepresentation, of course. What is really being suggested is that math be taught in students' vernacular, with problems based on where they live, for instance, or geometry related to familiar objects and instructional styles that lean into students' strengths. Making a student interesting and relevant so that a student will engage with it isn't a nefarious liberal plot. It's good teaching. In many cases, there is evidence that more accessible instructional methods benefit learners and even improve test scores. Yes, there are students who seem more naturally talented at math than others. And it's true that children who have an early interest in or substantial facility for math shouldn't be forced to suppress their desire to learn and progress in the name of equity. That would be equity to the lowest common denominator, which no one is actually asking for. But it is also true that certain modes of identifying and fast-tracking those students may be shaped by unintentionally race-based bias, how educators expect someone good at math to look and act. This can have negative implications for students who don't fit the preconceived mold, either leaving them underserved or discouraging their achievement. For almost as long as I can remember, I've thought of myself as bad at math. I'm good at reading, good at writing, well, you be the judge, but calculus eluded me during high school. I never blame math itself. My teachers, I believe, did try with me, but I wonder, when exactly did I decide I was bad at math? Was it an issue of ability or encouragement or both? Would different classroom experiences have left me with a less fixed mindset about my own abilities? Could I have been less prone to write myself off? For the sake of students like me, it's worth finding out. Any renewed attention to different educational approaches is worthwhile.
but turning this into a culture war question rather than one about how best to teach and learn serves no one. Public education is meant to be for all. Its purpose is not to sort out the gifted and leave the rest behind. Finding ways to support students of all kinds isn't woke. It's what teachers are meant to do. That is the op-ed piece titled, Is Math Racist? We Should Be Asking Different Questions. It was written by Christine Emba and is from the December 20th, 2021 edition of the Kansas City Star. The next article in today's program comes from Medical News Today. The title is, What to Know About Heart Disease in African-American Populations. It was medically reviewed by Dr. Payal Kohli, last name spelled K-O-H-L-I, and it was written by Zahn Vilnes, last name spelled V-I-L-L-I-N-E-S, and was originally published November 1, 2021. Heart disease is the leading cause of death for people of most racial and ethnic groups. However, it is more common among African-American people than among those belonging to other racial groups. In 2018, African-American people were 30% more likely than non-Hispanic white people to die of heart disease. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention note that black people in the United States tend to develop conditions in young adulthood or middle age that do not affect white people until they are in their 60s. These conditions include heart disease, as well as risk factors for heart disease, such as diabetes and high blood pressure. In the 2009 Coronary Artery Risk Development in a Young Adult Study, 26 out of the 27 cases of heart failure in people under the age of 50 years involved black people. Heart disease death rates have fallen among all racial and ethnic groups since 1999, according to the CDC. However, the rates remain higher for black people than other groups. Numerous factors play a role in the high rates of heart disease in African-American people, including socioeconomic disparities, lack of access to health care, and discrimination in health care. In addition, exposure to racism may increase the risk of stress-related health issues. Researchers are also investigating the extent to which genetics may contribute. Racism continues to be a reality for black people in the United States, but historical racism can also affect their lives. For example, segregated neighborhoods mean that black individuals are less likely to live in unpolluted, walkable neighborhoods with ready access to nutritious food. Structural racism in the United States affects black people's access to education and good jobs. It means that they earn, on average, less than white people are more likely to have negative interactions with police and have reduced access to quality health care. These issues can affect heart health both directly, such as when a black person cannot access a cardiologist, and indirectly. Racism is a chronic stressor that can erode health over time. It is important to note that socioeconomic improvements do not remove the differences in heart health between black people and those belonging to other populations. Moreover, improvements in education do not remove socioeconomic disparities pointing to the role of racism. Even with wealth and education, black people continue to experience higher rates of heart health issues. Lifestyle factors, lack of physical activity, eating to excess or eating a non-nutritious diet, 
obesity, smoking, and poor quality sleep. African-American people are less likely than white people to live in walkable, safe neighborhoods, which can contribute to low levels of physical activity and a higher risk of obesity. Other social factors may also affect these risk factors. For example, a person might overeat or eat comfort foods high in fat and added salt or sugar to deal with chronic stress, which can also lead to a higher risk of heart disease. Social factors. Social and environmental factors also correlate with a higher risk of heart disease. African-American people have higher rates of unemployment, poverty, and difficulty accessing medical care. African-American people are also less likely than white people to own a home. Each of these factors can affect cardiovascular health in myriad ways. For example, unemployment is not only stressful, but it can affect financial well-being and possibly the ability to buy nutritious food. Higher rates of risk factors. Black people in the United States have higher rates than white people of heart disease risk factors, including diabetes, kidney disease, high blood pressure, fiscal inactivity, smoking, low socioeconomic status, sleep disorders and poor quality sleep, and a high-fat, high-sodium diet that does not provide adequate nutrition. In many cases, social factors such as racism influence these risk factors. For example, residential segregation may decrease access to good quality food, while high blood pressure may be the result of chronic stress. In addition to having a higher likelihood of one risk factor, black people are also more likely to have multiple risk factors. Symptoms. Not all people with cardiovascular disease have symptoms. However, those who do may experience fluttering or pounding sensations in the chest, unexplained fatigue, swelling, especially in the feet, legs, stomach, or neck veins, shortness of breath, irregular heart rate, exercise intolerance. Some signs of a heart attack, which is an emergency requiring immediate care, include neck or upper back pain, chest pain, heartburn, indigestion, nausea, or stomach pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, pain in the upper body, sweating. These symptoms usually appear suddenly. Diagnosis. A doctor will ask a person about their symptoms and their individual and family medical histories. They will then likely order some tests to confirm the diagnosis. Some comic diagnostic tests are blood tests to look for signs of inflammation and markers for heart disease, as well as to check for heart disease risk factors such as diabetes. An electrocardiogram to measure electrical activity in the heart. An echocardiogram, which uses ultrasound to check the motion and strength of the heart. An exercise stress test to see how well the heart works under pressure. Radionuclide perfusion testing or multiple gated acquisition scanning, which involves injecting radioactive substances into the heart and then using imaging scans to visualize this organ and look for signs of damage. An MRI scan, which uses magnets to provide an image of the heart. Cardiac catheterization, which involves inserting a long, thin tube through a blood vessel to the heart before injecting a dye to help see the heart on an imaging scan. Treatment. Heart disease is more treatable in the early stages when numerous treatments can manage the condition and its consequences. Lifestyle changes and cardiac rehabilitation may also help. Cardiac rehabilitation combines education about heart health with support to make lifestyle changes. It can include 
dietary changes, exercise, physical therapy, medications for heart disease such as blood pressure or cholesterol medication, eliminating habits that harm health such as smoking, reaching and maintaining a moderate weight. In cases of more advanced disease, surgery may be necessary. This may involve procedures such as bypass surgery to bypass blocked blood vessels, placing a heart valve, installing a pacemaker, placing an implantable cardioverter defibrillator to stop harmful irregular heart rhythms. People can take steps to eliminate or reduce the severity of many heart disease risk factors. These steps include managing body weight, eating a very low-sodium diet rich in fiber, fruits, vegetables, and lean proteins, getting at least 150 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise such as brisk walking or 75 minutes of intense exercise such as running per week, finding a culturally competent doctor who understands and cares about the needs of black people in their care, developing strategies for controlling stress such as meditation or therapy, not every heart disease risk factor is controllable. Widespread public health solutions are critical because these strategies can reduce the influence of factors such as unsafe neighborhoods and institutional racism. It is possible to live a long life, even with heart disease, especially if a person follows their doctor's suggestions and lives a heart-healthy lifestyle. However, heart disease is often fatal and it can cause sudden death. Although heart disease death rates are falling among black people in the United States, they remain significantly higher than they do for other racial groups. Widespread public health measures, early interventions for individuals at particularly high risk and safer neighborhoods may help improve this situation over time. American people tend to develop heart disease risk factors and heart disease in earlier life and may die of heart disease while still relatively young. It is important that black people, including young people, understand their heightened risks so that they can be proactive in seeking care and adopting preventive lifestyle measures. However, individual behavior changes are unlikely to change the statistics significantly because racism, discrimination, segregation, lack of access to quality care, and unsafe environments all play a major role. Therefore, a public health solution is necessary. That was the article, What to Know About Heart Disease in African American Populations. It was originally published November 1, 2021 in Medical News Today, and was written by Zahn Vilness. Next on today's show is an obituary. The title is Lee Elder, a trailblazer and four-time tour winner, passes away at 87. It was written by Bill Fields and was published November 29, 2021 on the PGATour.com website. The week that he made golf history in 1975 as the first African-American to play in the Masters Tournament Lee Elder made an important point to reporters documenting his milestone appearance. I don't want to go down in history just for this, he said. I want to be remembered, if I'm remembered at all, because I was a good golfer. That he was, playing in 448 PGA Tour events and winning four times, then claiming another eight victories on PGA Tour champions. Elder, who died early Sunday morning at age 87, endured a long, hard road on the tour as an African-American, overcoming a difficult childhood and racial discrimination to forge a successful career in a sport historically unkind to black players. I think a lot of guys would have given up, Elder said during his rookie season of 1968 when he turned 34. 
I don't think they would have stuck it out this long. The 2019 recipient of the Bob Jones Award for Distinguished Sportsmanship, the highest honor given by the United States Golf Association, Elder forged his game in the years when a Caucasian-only clause barred blacks from competing on the American professional circuit, then governed by the PGA of America. Elder turned pro in 1959, two years before the racial prohibition was removed from PGA bylaws after legal pressure from California Attorney General Stanley Mosk and set out on the United Golfers Association tournament trail for African-American players. Wherever they had a tournament, that's where we'd go, Elder told author Pete McDaniel in Uneven Lies, the heroic story of African-Americans in golf. Elder won four UGA Negro National Opens and in 1966 had a stretch in which he won 18 of 22 starts. What Lee Elder was born with was a lot of patience, determination, guts, and willpower, famed sports writer Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times wrote in 1975, you can't play golf without all four of these. Robert Lee Elder was born July 14, 1934, in Dallas, Texas, the youngest of 10 children. His father was killed in action during World War II when Lee was nine, and his mother died only three months later. He was taken in by his Aunt Sarah when he was 11, living in Wichita Falls, Texas, and Los Angeles before returning to Texas. My aunt was an incredible person, Elder wrote in Golf Digest in 2019. She gave me love and discipline, didn't let me get too far out of line. Her resources were limited, but she carried herself with great dignity, communicated well with people, and taught me right from wrong. I was on my own after about age 16, but she got me to a point where I could care for myself. Elder got into golf as a caddy, playing his first 18-hole round when he was 16 with scavenged golf balls and wooden shafted clubs bought at a second-hand store. He got by by hustling golf games around Dallas, winning money by playing on one leg, on his knees, or using a cross-handed grip. Eventually, Elder hit the road with Titanic Thompson, hustler extraordinaire, often posing as Thompson's caddy before unleashing his unexpected skill to help lighten the wallets of the duo's opposition. I'm not real proud of everything that happened traveling with Ty, Elder said in Golf Digest, because some of the ruses were a little sneaky, but it was an interesting life and it trained me to handle pressure. Despite his seasoning in the high-stakes money games being tutored by the very talented African-American golfer Ted Rhodes and dominating the UGA tournaments, Elder lacked full belief in his skills until successfully qualifying for the 1966 U.S. Open, where he was grouped the first two days with teenage phenon Johnny Miller, who was brimming with confidence. Elder made the cut and the following year decided to give PGA Tour Q School a shot. Not only did Elder think he had the requisite game to make it, he also had at least $6,500 in the bank, then a requirement to enter the school. Over 144 holes at PGA National Golf Club in West Palm Beach, Florida in October 1967, Elder was among 30 players in the 111-man field to secure playing privileges. Among those who missed were Butch Harmon, 24, and Bill Spiller, 53. Spiller was an accomplished black golfer of the 1940s and 50s who never got a fair shot at the big time because of racist policies. It's remarkable to look back on Lee's life and career and realize the hardships he endured and the sacrifices he made to reach golf's highest level, said PGA Tour Commissioner Joy Monahan. To have the success he had while paving the way for others to dream big and achieve 
It's a testament to the type of man he was and how much talent he possessed. The tour is profoundly grateful for the career of Lee Elder, and we extend our sincerest sympathies to his family. Even as Elder began his tour career, joining winners Pete Brown and Charlie Sifford and other African-Americans where they once were barred, lodging and travel could still be tenuous because of prejudice. And racial animus hadn't gone the way of the Caucasian-only clause that had kept Spiller, Rhodes, and other blacks out of top-level competition. Elder didn't win as a rookie in 1968, but battling Jack Nicklaus in a nationally televised five-hole playoff in the American Golf Classic at Firestone Country Club in Akron, Ohio, raised his profile as a burgeoning star on the tour. Lee Elder was a pioneer, and in so many ways, said Jack Nicklaus. Yes, he was the first black player to compete in the Masters Tournament, but that simply underlined the hard work Lee put in to further the cause of everyone who has a dream to play on the PGA Tour and perhaps thinks there are too many barriers before them. It was wonderful that the Masters Tournament and Augusta National paid a well-deserved tribute to Lee by inviting him to be an honorary starter for this last Masters. That morning, you could see the joy in Lee's face, and Gary Player and I were honored to enjoy that moment with him. That memory will remain special for so many, including me, for many years to come. Lee was a good golfer, but most important, a good man who was very well respected by countless people, added Nicholas. The game of golf lost a hero in Lee Elder. Barbara and I send our heartfelt condolences to Lee's wife Sharon and their entire family. After finishing 45th on the money list during his rookie campaign and becoming the first African-American on the cover of Golf Digest, for the next decade, Elder consistently stayed among the top 60 on the money list, the requirement for exempt status in that era. He only missed that standard twice. One of those seasons was 1975, when his appearance in the Masters was a dominant storyline after he won the 1974 Monsanto Open to earn an invitation. His impending appearance at Augusta National consumed his attention leading up to the Masters, a period during which he received many death threats. Last week, I tried to light a pencil. Elder, a heavy smoker in those days, told the Associated Press in Augusta. The pre-tournament pressure yielded to a perfect drive on the first hole, but rounds of 74 and 78 led to a missed cut. He played in the Masters five more times, tying for 11th in 1979 to match his best career finish in a major at the 1974 PGA Championship. Elder finished sixth in the players in 1976. Elder's best year came in 1978 when he won the Greater Milwaukee Open and American Express Westchester Classic and finished 13th on the money list with $152,198 in earnings. At Milwaukee, 10 years after his epic playoff with Nicholas at Firestone, Elder flipped the script against another icon, Lee Trevino, by winning on the eighth hole of sudden death. Trevino had been working with Elder, helping him tame a hook and move the ball left to right, including several hours on the range at Tuckaway Country Club in Wisconsin. Fellow pro Dave Stockton, an extraordinary putter, had improved Elder's putting stroke by making it less risky. It shows the true character of a guy who is willing to work with and help a fellow competitor, Elder said late in the 1978 season, which set him up to make the 1979 U.S. Ryder Cup team, the first black golfer to play in the biennial matches. Elder had a 1-3-0 and record in a 17-11 American victory and the first Ryder Cup to include players from continental Europe. 
Elder won eight times on PGA Tour champions from 1984 to 1988, where he felt less pressure to succeed. The game is a whole lot more money now, he told a Philadelphia reporter in 1987. It's not as cutthroat. We're close. We joke with each other. You can take a week off and be with your family and not worry about six guys moving past you on the money list. Even so, Elder finished second on the 1985 money list behind Peter Thompson on the strength of his four victories and three runner-up finishes. Elder went on to play in 414 total PGA Tour Champions events and even 1,200 rounds, his last official appearance coming in 2004. Some of the inspiration that Ted Rhodes gave other black professionals like Lee Elder rubbed off on me, said Calvin Pete, who died in 2015 after winning a dozen PGA Tour events, including the 1985 players from 1979 through 1986. Lee Elder was a protege of Ted's, and I got inspired watching Lee play in the late 1960s. I remember watching Lee playing Jack Nicholas in a playoff on television. Lee was the first black I'd ever seen play and I was so impressed by the way he carried himself. In April 1997, Elder returned to Augusta National Golf Club not to play, but to watch. He flew from Florida to Atlanta early Sunday morning, then drove across Georgia in time to see Tiger Woods tee off on number one in pursuit of a record and barrier-breaking victory. On the land where Elder became the first African-American to compete in the Masters Tournament 22 years earlier, the multi-ethnic Woods wrapped up a 12-stroke victory. As Woods walked past a line of cheering fans toward Butler Cabin to receive a green jacket, he stopped to embrace Elder. Moments earlier, while completing his historic tour de force, Woods had reflected on African-American golfers such as Sifford and Elder, who paved the way in a sport slow to welcome them. I thought about those guys coming up 18, Woods said that evening. I said a little prayer and said thanks. I wasn't the first. I wasn't a pioneer. I thank them. I think that's why this victory is even more special. Lee, because of what he did, I was able to play here. Because of Charlie, I was able to play on the PGA Tour. I live my dream because of those guys. 45 years after his trailblazing appearance at Augusta National, Elder was recognized by the club, which established scholarships in his name at Payne College, a historically black college in Augusta, and invited him to be an honorary starter at the 2021 Masters, along with Nicholas and Gary Player. Augusta National Chairman Fred Ridley introduced Elder, who did not hit a tee ball due to health reasons. Today, Lee Elder will inspire us and make history once more, not with a drive, but with his presence, strength, and character, Ridley said to the assembled audience that included several African-American PGA of American professionals and Masters champions Phil Mickelson and Bubba Watson. Lee endured so much, and that made his appearance at the Masters ceremonial tee shot with Jack and I so special, said player. He was honored for his remarkable contributions to golf. He will be greatly missed in the golf world. Rest in peace, my friend. In 1968, player, long an opponent of apartheid in his native South Africa, asked Elder to play in the South African PGA at a time when a black player competing in the event was not popular among many segments of the population. It was an invitation Elder accepted. The aim was to put a spoke in the wheel of apartheid. He was put under immense pressure not to come, but he still came. It took serious guts. 
but that is Lee Elder. His trip to South Africa went better than we could have ever imagined. He received standing ovations at every turn. It was truly special to see, said Player, who lost his wife, Vivian, to cancer in August. I am very sad to hear of Lee's passing. I would like to send my deepest sympathies to his wife and family at this difficult time. He was a great contributor to society. He went through tough times in his life, but was determined, like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, to build a colorless society and one that allowed for equal opportunities for all. There are photographs of Lee Elder that accompany this story. The first is a close-up of a young elder as he completes his golf swing. He is wearing a tan shirt and looking down the fairway. There is no caption with this picture. The next photo is of Lee Elder and two other golfing legends, Gary Player and Jack Nicholas, standing in a row and each holding a golf club. Lee Elder is wearing a black golf cap and a light blue golf shirt and is saluting the crowd. Oxygen tank tubes are crossing his face. Gary Player is next to him, dressed in all black and applauding. Jack Nicholas is wearing a yellow golf sweater and a matching golf cap. He is smiling and applauding Mr. Elder. The caption reads, Lee Elder with Gary Player and Jack Nicholas during the opening ceremony at the 2021 Masters in April. That was the obituary of Lee Elder. The title is, Lee Elder, a trailblazer and four-time tour winner, passes away at 87. It was written by Bill Fields and was published November 29, 2021 on the PGA website. Next is an op-ed piece. The title is, Bell Hook's Death is a Call to Action. The subtitle is, And Why Exposing the Strictures of the Dynamic and Intersecting Systems of Domination was Only the Start of Her Vision, Not the End Game. It originally appeared in the NBCNews.com website, December 16, 2021, and was written by Marcy Bianco. What is your lesson this moment? What does Bell Hook's death enjoin us to do? These are the questions I ask myself as I walk circles around the Stanford University bookstore on Wednesday, just hours after reading of Hook's passing at the age of 69 from end-stage renal failure. I felt the air in an attempt to sense the memory of her presence. She, Gloria Jean Watkins, completed her undergraduate degree in English literature at Stanford in 1974. After my second circumambulation, I walked into the bookstore to see if there were any of her more than 30 books available. There were none. I asked a bookseller for assistance. Apparently, there was one single copy of All About Love, but as if to add insult to the enormity of her loss, neither the bookseller nor I could find it. Hook's world-changing books on feminism, to me, partner in kind with her world-building books on love. In classic texts like Ain't I a Woman, 1981, Feminist Theory, From Margin to Center, 1984, Sisters of the Yam, 1993, and Feminism is for Everybody, 2000, Hooks not only made feminism accessible to all people, but did so without compromising her insight and methodical exposure to the limitations of feminism. For Hooks, reforming society's system and institutions would not eradicate racism and classism. And this often meant interrogating some long-cherished feminist ideals like equality and how white feminism reinforced the white supremacy by seeking to attain the same rights and privileges of white men. 
In feminist theory, from margin to center, for example, she wrote, since men are not equals in a white supremacist capitalistic patriarchal class structure, which men do women want to be equal to? Do women share a common vision of what equality means? Exposing the strictures of the dynamic and intersecting systems of domination, what she often referred to as the imperialist white supremacist capitalistic patriarchy, was only the start of her vision, not the end game. Hers was a world-building mission, reflective of her cherished role as a teacher and mentor, guiding such books as Teaching to Transgress, 1994, Outlaw Culture, 1994, Communion, The Female Search of Love, 2002, and All About Love, New Visions, 2020. This mission to achieve a cultural transformation demands that each of us become aware of each other and take responsibility for our actions and the choices we make. For feminists to do this, Hooks challenged white women who abdicate responsibility for their role in the maintenance and perpetuation of sexism, racism, and classism, which they do by insisting that only men were the enemy. They did not acknowledge and confront the enemy within. She added, women must learn to accept responsibility for fighting oppressions that may not directly affect us as individuals. When we show our concern for the collective, we strengthen our solidarity. And this is why love figures so integrally into Hook's world building. Love is a practice, actions that we have a choice of willing to create communities based on values of dignity, belonging, justice, and joy. Social movements like the Black Civil Rights Movement that transform society are rooted in a love ethic, she wrote, in Love as the Practice of Freedom in Outlaw Culture. Love is an ethical choice and the antidote to systems of oppressions. A culture of domination is anti-love, Hooks explained. It requires violence to sustain itself. To choose to love is to go against the prevailing values of the culture. But to choose love is also to practice freedom because it requires an awareness that all our freedoms are interconnected. Awareness is central to the process of love as the practice of freedom. When those of us who are members of exploited and oppressed groups dare to critically interrogate our locations, the identities and allegiances that inform how we live our lives, we begin the process of decolonization. If we discover in ourselves self-hatred, low self-esteem, or internalized white supremacist thinking and we face it, we can begin to heal. This understanding of freedom evokes a tradition of feminist thinkers and activists who understood that, as Audre Lorde said, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. It is what Simone de Beauvoir called a genuine freedom. World building is not a solitary endeavor, contrary to the imperialist notion of American rugged individualism. We depend on one another. We depend on the body that nurtures us and bears us. We depend on teachers, parents, and mentors to educate and guide us through our lives. And as the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us, we depend on healthcare workers to save our lives. We depend on politicians to enact laws to improve our infrastructure that secures our bridges and provides us clean water. We depend, that is, on the services of others, despite the fact that our society largely refuses to acknowledge and compensate as such. And this is the enjoinder of Bell Hook's passing. Just scrolling through the hundreds of tweets and posts on social media quoting this black feminist North Star, one can see how many of us were affected by her words. 
Here is all our call to action. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. That was the op-ed piece titled, Bell Hook's Death is a Call to Action, written by Marcy Bianco, originally published on the NBCNews.com website on December 16, 2021. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.